Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, beautiful souls. This week on the podcast, Rex takes a gritty and deep dive into all the details surrounding his suicide and then his being revived. Um, We really want to make sure that everyone's super aware to be really tender with yourselves around this one. There's some pretty dark and and pretty grisly stuff, um, but we really feel like in order to combat the darkness of suicide, we have to talk about it. We have to be open about it. Um, So be kind to yourselves, take care of yourselves, pause if you need to, reach out and talk to someone if you need to. Um, Love you all. Bye. Everybody, I'm Rex. I'm Raina. And this week uh, is a little special to us because I am going to talk about my nine years clean today. Uh, Today is my nine year anniversary. Uh, Today's October 28th, 2022. Nine years ago today, I got decided to make a change in my life. Um, but I want to talk quickly, um, or briefly, uh, about what I have going on now. And then I'm going to get into the story of how I stayed clean for nine years. We'll get more into that here in a minute. First, I want to talk about, uh, what's going on right now. Um, because I know some, not everybody listens to the whole podcast. So I'm, instead of waiting to the end to talk about what's going on right We're now. We're going to do an update in the beginning. Yep. <laughs> um, so as some of you know, those who follow me on TikTok, on Facebook, on Instagram, or follow the show on any of those platforms, um, already know this, so bear with me. Those of you who don't, um, on June 25th of next year, I will depart from Seattle, Washington on my bicycle, and I'm going to ride all the way to San Francisco, from San Francisco to Denver, from Denver to Washington, D.C., and from Washington, D.C. to Miami, Florida. It's a 5,800-plus mile journey, and the reason that I'm doing this is because I have partnered, uh, our nonprofit No Love Foundation has partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I decided to do this bike ride to raise awareness and to raise money for outreach and programs. Um, Why this is so important to me, you guys can follow any of the links in the show description uh, to the GoFundMe if you want to donate directly to 
me. There's, uh, you can go to the website. You can donate through there. You can go to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Donate there. There's many places. If you can't donate, at least share. Share the link. Share the post. Talk about what's going on with other people because suicide doesn't just affect the people who take their own lives. They say on average it affects six other people. So for every individual who takes their own life, and it's about 130 a day in the United States, that's times seven. That's an entire family that's impacted. Absolutely, an entire family. And I can almost guarantee that everybody listening to this has been affected by it in some way. You either know someone, you have a loved one, um, and you've thought about it yourself. According to statistics, 78% of Americans 18 to 65 have had have had thoughts of suicide at one point or another in their life. Um, it's a messed up world we live in. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of... Despair. Despair. A lot of despair. Um, and sadly, a large portion, 80% of that 130 a day, um, are men. Um, women try more than men, but men succeed almost four times more than women. Uh, so for followers of the show who've, or follows followers of me or the show on social media, you guys know that, um, I'm a suicide survivor. Um, those of you who don't though, I'm going to talk a little bit about that and why this is so near and dear to myself. Um, because 70%, 69.9% of the 130 individuals who take their day on average are middle-aged white men. Um, and that was the demographic that I was in when I had my suicide attempt. I was 39 years old. Um, and I wasn't really depressed. I mean, I wasn't happy that I had relapsed again. Um, but I wasn't like depressed. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't feel. You, over... you found yourself in that, that portion of the population of dislocated, disconnected people. Yes. Like I felt alone. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt alone and I felt that the only other options was prison. Um, I had a nine year suspended prison sentence because I had pawned some stolen stuff on my last relapse. And uh, yeah, just a whole, there was a whole lot hanging over my head. I had pawned, I had bought a bike when I was sober the first time um, between January of 06 and January 2012, um, it was like a $5,000 downhill mountain bike, really nice, high-end, and I bought it from this guy, along with a bunch of other stuff, some furniture and stuff like that, um, who I'd found on Craigslist, um, the bike was the first thing I bought, and I had him meet me at the Parker Police Station in Parker, Colorado, and we took the bike inside, they ran the serial number, and it came back clean, wasn't stolen, um, and so I bought it, $1,500 cash, and uh, went back into the police station, registered under registered it under my name with my driver's license at my home address, and thought nothing else of it 
for three years. That was like 2009. Uh, 2012, I relapsed in January. I burned through my savings real quick. Uh, but I didn't want to go back to a life of crime. So I had a bunch of stuff in storage. So I started pawning it off. And then it finally got to the point where the only thing I really had of value left was my bike. So I went and pawned the bike. Um, and like two weeks later, I got clean. I decided to kick. And I did. And it went well. And uh, I went back to the pawn shop like two weeks after that to pawn something small so I could pay my cell phone bill. And I got arrested. And uh, that was the first time I got arrested. Uh, so I sat in jail for about, oh no, so I sat in jail for about two days and I had a warrant out of Larimer County, which is Fort Collins, where, where we live now. Um, but it was out of Loveland, Colorado. And it was for false information to a pawnbroker. And I didn't have any idea what that was about. Because the only stuff I'd ever pawned in Loveland was when I was living with a couple friends of mine. And all of the stuff I pawned, I was allowed to pawn. Like, we went together. Well, uh, turns out the girlfriend of said couple was pawning a bunch of stuff that she wasn't supposed to be pawning. But her ID had a hole punched in it. Um, so she, her, her license was restricted or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I had to use my ID to pawn the stuff. And so I get arrested. I go to county jail in Larimer County. And I sit there for five and a half months. And in that five and a half months, I'm trying to get my public defender. So I said to him, because he had, there's, so there's these messages on Facebook. Um, I had put a post on Facebook and then she had commented, her name was Christine. She had commented that, hey, I'm sorry you're not doing good, but what's up with all this stuff? And da 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 da. And so I was homeless. I didn't have a smartphone. Um, so the only time I would ever get on Facebook is when I would go to the library in Denver. And I go to the, I go, my attorney shows me these conversations or no, no, first, back up. Before I got arrested, um, I had responded. And I, was, I, I was like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about, like stolen stuff, and pawned stuff. I was like, but the only thing I've pawned is what you told me I could. And then I didn't say anything else. I logged out and I left. And fast forward, I'm sitting in jail. My attorney's got this printout of Facebook screenshots. And there's this whole conversation that's basically admitting to like robbing them. Like, I'm like, so sorry that I took your stuff. I was just in a really bad place and I was really strung out. And I'm so sorry. Please don't call the police. And like, she's like, we have to call the police because you sold, you, you sold, uh, you stole weapons. There was like a couple compound bows um, and like other stuff and jewelry. And, uh, and then it's like basically back and forth, me begging her and him not to call the police and them saying, we're sorry, but it's for your own good. This is probably the only thing that's going to save your life. <clears throat> so I'm telling my public defender, I'm like, hey, man, I didn't write those fucking messages. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, what part of that are you having trouble with? I was like, I did not write those messages. I was like, I wrote that message. And then I left the library. 
And he's like, well, I was like, check this out, man. I said, I bet if you contacted CSI or whatever it is that you call it here, your internet people who work for the public defenders, they can go and you can check the IP address of where those messages were sent from. He laughed in my face, literally laughed, belly laughed. And he was like, you watch too much TV. And I was like, so you're telling me that in a criminal case where the defendant is claiming that the plaintiff lied and manufactured these messages, which is all the proof they have that I stole the stuff. Because if you go and look at the camera footage, she's there with me all the time. I was like, what about the camera footage from the pawn shop? And he's like, well, they only hold on to that for, and I said, and I jumped in. I was like, three years, three years is how long they hold it. And he was like, well, even with the footage from the camera, from the camera footage, he was like, without being able to prove that the messages were fake. He's like, cause all she has to say is that she didn't know that it was her boyfriend's stuff that you were pawning. So I'm like, okay, so let's subpoena Facebook. I was like, let's subpoena Facebook and tell them that we want the, uh, the origin, the uh, spot of origin from where the IP address was sent from. What town was this sent from? What computer was it sent from? I said, Cause check it out. I said, the only computer in the world right now that has my Facebook log on, saved on it is her laptop. I said, so I guarantee that those messages were sent for her from her laptop. He told me that I watched too much TV, that it was up to me to go to the law library because uh, every jail has a law library for defendants who want to defend themselves or inmates who want to defend themselves, I mean. Uh, but in Larimer County Jail, it's a computer that you only get access to once a week and it has every single case law ever filed in the United States. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of fucking case laws. And I'm supposed to find case law on this computer that I have no idea. And it doesn't have a keyboard. It's all touchscreen. You just got to scroll, put in keywords. Man, I spent five months on this computer once, maybe twice a week, trying to find case law. And I couldn't find any case law to subpoena that Facebook stuff. So fast forward, I take a deal. They told me, we'll give you five years probation with nine years suspended, DOC suspended. No, six years, DOC suspended. And that's the best year, deal you're going to take. You were going to give you, take it or we're going to trial. So <clears throat> my attorney's like, you have to take the deal. I'm like, well, of course I have to take the fucking deal. I was like, because I have an attorney who won't do his job. And he got really upset about that. I wouldn't take my calls anymore. This is a public defender, right? So there is no other option for me. This is the one you get when you ain't got no money. And uh, so I take the deal. I get out. I move into this sober living house in Loveland, Colorado. And uh, I contact Jordan, the boyfriend, to make amends to him because... In my mind, I'm like, he doesn't know. He was working on oil rigs for like two weeks at a time and her and I were just getting high. Like we weren't hooking up, we weren't fucking, we weren't doing none of that. We were just getting high. Uh, she was fucking other dudes. Um, but 
but I was just miserable. I just wanted to get high. I didn't want to feel nothing. I was sad because I relapsed. I just, in the middle of a divorce, I didn't want to deal with none of the fucking life. And so I contact a boyfriend and I'm like, hey man, I was like, I'd love to get together with you. I get him on, contact my messenger. I said, I would love to get together with you. I, I owe you an amends. So he texts me. I sent him my number. He texts me and he was like, I actually owe you an amends and I have a box of your stuff. Where are you staying at? So I tell him where I'm staying. He brings this box of clothes and shoes that I left at his house. And he was like, I owe you an amends. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I know you didn't steal my stuff. He was like, I thought you and Christina were having an affair behind my back. I said, and I told him, I said, no. He said, I know you weren't. He was like, I met the guy she was having an affair with. Um, he's like, I watched her write those messages on your Facebook back and forth because she said it was the only way I could get my stuff back. And I'm like, are you willing to go talk to the DA about this? And he's like, nope. Because he knew if he went to the DA, he would be charged with fucking filing a false police report and blah, 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 blah. Like, he probably would have caught three or four felonies. He might have gone to prison. So instead of doing the right thing, he left the country and went to work for oil rigs over in the Middle East. So, I relapsed again. That, in my mind, that was enough reason to relapse again. I was like, I knew I was right. This is bullshit. Fuck the system. Fuck them. Fuck you. Fuck me. Fuck Just everybody. Once again, life is against you. That's it. You Everything's know I mean? against you. Every, why should you try? Yep. What's the bother? What's the point? Nobody cares. Why yep. should I? Fucking. And uh, so I relapsed. I went back out um, for a couple months. And then my patient officer was just an awesome, awesome woman. And she kept giving me chances and I kept missing UAs. And finally I was like, I really don't want to get high anymore. Can you put me in detox? She put me in detox and I uh, got out of detox. She got me a bed at the halfway house. Now remember, I got arrested at the pawn shop in Boulder for pawning, for selling stolen property. And, uh, so I never hear nothing about that again, right? So fast forward, I'm back, get out of detox. My case manager gets me a bed in the halfway house. The halfway house is like, you got to sit here and do these like little classes and orientations for, for five days. Uh, but then you can go out and get a job. So I did my little thing for five days. Like I went to the church and got like free clothes, like nice clothes and stuff, new shoes, went and got a haircut and, uh, was like, man, I'm really going to try. Boom. First day on job search, I got a job. It was just a Qdoba, but whatever. It was a job, right? And uh, I go back to the halfway house, and I'm all happy, man. I, I go up to my room. I tell my case manager, I'm like, hey, I got a job. She's like, did? I was like, yeah. She's like, really? I'm like, yup. We called. She verified the job. So, bam, I was, I was starting the next day. Because like, they're like, when can you start? I'm like, today? They're like, well, how about tomorrow? I was like, yeah. Because it's $17 a day in the halfway house. And it don't stop if you ain't got a job. And I'd already been there five days. So in my mind, I'm like, man, I already owe these people a hundred bucks. I, I hope everyone who isn't super familiar with the system is catching like how impossible it is to get yourself out. Like once you're down underneath it all, like I, I hope you're catching like if you don't have any resources of your own or you don't have any family or anyone who's going to bail you out, how really, really difficult <laughs> It is to to 
make change in your life. So yes. I just don't mean to interrupt you. No, but. and that's and that's the truth because had I not taken that deal to get out, then I would have sat in county jail for another year fighting it. And if I would have won, I'd have got out. Had I not won, then I'd have had to go to prison because by, at that point when you fight it, then they throw as much at you as they can. They'll add charges. They'll overwhelm you with charges to get the jury to convict on something. Um, which nine out of ten times. So this is just like wearing you down. Wearing yeah, you that's down, what they do. They wear you down. down. Yep, they wear you down. down. Um, and uh, so I relapse. Fast forward. I'm back in the halfway house. I got a job. I go. I go up to my room. It's a cell. They call it a room, but it's a cell. Just because it doesn't have bars or locked doors doesn't mean it's a cell. Um, and I take a nap. I don't know for how long, not very long, but I hear my name being called over the loudspeaker, over the PA system. So I'm like, all right, cool, thinking it's about my job. And so I just grab my wallet and throw my shoes on because I didn't, I was just laid down on top of the rack, you know. And uh, I go downstairs and there's my case manager crying. Like she's got tears in her eyes, like welled up. And I'm like, what's up? And she's like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what? And I, and I keep walking and I look around the corner. As soon as I hit the corner, I look and there's two sheriffs, Larimer County deputies. And I'm like, what the fuck? I was like, what is this about? And uh, the one steps up and he was like, Boulder County just filed a warrant for your arrest for false information to a pawnbroker. I'm like, what? A year later? Like a year later? So I get to the jail. The detective comes to talk to me. She's got a sling on her arm. Apparently she got hurt on the job and was out of work for eight months. So they just backburnered my case because statute of limits, they got as long as they want. You know what I mean? They got years. So I I go to jail and uh, they let me out. I get a bond. My probation officer speaks up for me. They extradite me to Boulder. She calls the judge in Boulder. The, Boulder, the, the judge in Boulder contacts the bonds person in Boulder County Jail and they set my bond at a $25,000 personal recognizance. Basically, I just sign a thing that says, I promise to show up. If I don't show up, I owe you $25,000. Um, so, to celebrate life fucking me once again, I immediately relapsed. I got out, I got on a bus, I went to the library, and here's the thing. This is how fucking... This is how insidious addiction is. I wasn't even going to get high. I was going to the courthouse, the Justice Center in Boulder, downtown, to do my entry UA for monitored bond. You have to do monitored sobriety on bond. And uh, I see two people. They're like, hey, man, what's up, dude? You look good. I was like, yeah, you guys got any dope? They're like, yup, boom. Within five minutes, I was high. So then I blew off the fucking UA for like six hours. By the time I got there, it was too late. I had to go back the next day, which I didn't do for like five days. And then I went in there with some bullshit excuse like, oh, I didn't know. I, had, I thought I had a week. She's like, did you read the paperwork? I'm like, no, nah, I don't have my glasses. And she's like, oh, okay. It's okay. Because, you know, Boulder's super progressive and junkies can do no wrong in Boulder, really. Um, 
Well, so they also understand that it's it's a yeah. yeah. So at this point, I've been getting high for like five days now, um, and I decided that I was just going to do all the drugs I could so that my levels would be super high, so that they wouldn't really expect them to be like negative the next time. <laughs> So for like five days, I just been smoking like weed, smoking tons of weed. I mean, like smoking so much pot, and uh, doing a bunch of meth, some coke, some heroin, because all of a sudden all these people came out of the woodwork who just wanted to get me high. I didn't have any money, and uh, <clears throat> I went back to the pawn shop. I wasn't pawning anything. I was with this dude, Casper. Casper Vaughn. Oh, I hate that dude. I don't really hate him. I've forgiven him. But man, I just couldn't believe how this whole thing went down. Him and his wife were living in my house. Like literally. Like, well, I, I rented a room in a house and it had a loft. So I stayed up on the loft, gave them the main part. And they didn't pay no rent. They, we just all shared our dope together. And uh, him and I go to my storage unit and then we go to his storage unit and get a few things. Um, like I had this uh, Yankees Red Sox collector edition uh, glass chess set. I was like, I can get 20 bucks for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, I had a, a, a varsity jacket that uh, on the back had all 27 patches from when the Yankees had won the championship patches with the 2009 one in the back. I got like, oh, I, I paid like $700 for that. I was like, I can get a couple hundred bucks for this, right? So, but I'm like, you got to pawn it because they won't pawn to me anymore because I sold some stuff. And uh, so we go in and he's doing the thing. He's pawning it. And they're like, yeah, we'll give you $200 for the jacket. We'll give you a hundred bucks for the chest set. So I'm just like, yeah, you know, that's 300 bucks. And uh, he's pawning his stuff. He fills out the paperwork and the manager who busted me the first time he like looks at me and I said hey I'm not selling nothing man I'm just here with him I was like I haven't been back here since and he was like yeah 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 so apparently something else that I sold sold besides the bike with the bike came back and stolen because the pawn shop this pawn shop in Boulder it's called Rebay it's not really a pawn shop you can only sell them stuff you can't get it back you can't get a loan on it you have to sell them and then they sell it on eBay so whenever something sells they run it. And I can't remember what it was. Um, some kind of power tool. A big power tool that I had bought from this guy too. It came back stolen. And so I'm standing there with Casper. And uh, he's like, what do you think is taking so long? I was like, I don't know, man. I was like, I pawned some stolen shit here once. I was like, but I've already been arrested for that. Within seconds of me saying that, BPD pulls up. Boom. They walk in. Manager looks at me and I and just That's Boulder Police yeah, Department. Yeah, Boulder Police Department. Uh, <laughs> For all the normies out there sorry. who are having trouble tracking all this. <laughs> questions or comments, just put them in the YouTube or in the comments. <laughs> I'll answer any questions if you need me to decipher. The pawn anything. shop rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is all relevant because this is all in the last my last relapse. And it's just like the snowball effect of like everything that's fucking happening. Like I take two steps forward and I take 10 steps back. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, God was done letting me get away with anything. God was done letting me get away with anything. He was calling like the, the bill was coming due. And 
God had given me enough grace at this point and I think was kind of sick of my shit, you know, um, sick of me always copping out, always taking. And, you know, people say the easy way out. Like, I mean, I guess getting high is the easy way out. Unless you've been a junkie living on the streets, ain't nothing fucking easy about it. Uh, but anyway, uh, as Boulder Police Department pulls up, I had one of those uh, hard sunglass cases that I had my syringes and cooker and stuff in there. It was my kit. And I handed it to Casper. I was like, hold on to this, man. I was like, I think I'm about to get arrested. Man, cops come in. Manager, blah, blah, blah. Points at me. I was like, fuck. I was like, what now? I was like, I'm literally on bond from the last time you called me. I was like, and I haven't sold anything else. And he was like, same transaction. We just didn't know it. I'm like, what the fuck? So they arrest me. And the cop standing outside with me and his partner, the other cop goes inside and he's like, are you going to run? I'm like, no, dude, I'm not going to run. I was like, we're all good. I'm not going to run. And his partner comes out and he's like, hey, you got any witness statements? And he's like, yeah. He's like, how many do you need? He's like, three. He's like, three, there's only two people working. He's like, yeah, his buddy wants to write one on him. I'm like, what? And like, I look in the window First, the cop goes in, and I watch him. And the other cop standing in front of me. He's allowing, he likes, he can tell how fucked up I am by this. He's like, what's your, he's like, what's your boy doing? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I'm handcuffed behind my back, and I, like, look in the window. He hands Casper a statement, and he starts writing it out. I kick the window. He looks at me. I'm like, what the fuck? And he was like, shrugs his shoulders. I'm like, what the fuck? He wrote down every single thing that I had so told all, him. All you junkies out there know that when your junkie friends get even scared, they're <laughs> they're not going to be worried about you. Especially junkies, <laughs> like especially ones like Casper. Casper was one of those dudes who would literally cry if he was dope sick. Like he would just talk about, I hate it so much. Like yeah. Anyway, ah. Uh, so I go back to jail, and. I was in there for like three and a half months because uh, that's about how long it takes to fucking get a plea bargain to go through your arraignment, your pretrial conferences, your blah, 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 all this shit. Um, and they're like, well, give you three years probation and run it concurrent with your five years probation and we're going to give you three more years DOC suspended consecutive to the six that you already have have suspended. Okay, so let me break that down for you. So I was already on five years probation and if I fucked that probation up, if I violated it in any way, then I had six years in the Colorado Department of Corrections to serve. Now granted you don't do all that amount of time, but that how, that is how long the maximum sentence was. Because I had committed these crimes before I took that probation deal, it does not count as a violation because I'd done it already. No matter how many times you get arrested, like if I kill 15 people today and then I rob a bank tomorrow and I get sentenced a year from now to five years in prison for that bank robbery, and then I get out on parole and they're like, hey, he murdered this guy. They can't come and say, oh, we're going to violate your parole because you caught a new case because it's not a new case. It's an old case, even blah, 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 blah. You see what I'm saying? So anyway... 
The law is screwy. It is. It's like, <laughs> seriously, if you haven't really spent any time in it or studying it, it's so fucking confusing. And it's meant to be that way. Yeah. It's meant to keep the defendants or the plaintiffs in whatever, whether it be civil or criminal, it's meant, that, meant to keep them at a disadvantage because there's one guy or one team representing the plaintiffs, then there's one guy or one team representing the defendants, and then there's the one guy who sits and lords over it all, the judge, and then if you're foolish enough to have a jury of your peers, then you've got them, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you're ever unfortunate enough to go to trial, unless you have a judge who's known for just being a POS, go to trial by judge, because then you just got to make him have reasonable doubt instead of 12 other strangers. But anyway, uh, I took the deal. Oh, and, and consec con concurrent means, so when they gave me the three years probation concurrent with the five, that means that from that point on, my two probations were doing the same amount of time, parallel to each other. But when he threw the three years consecutive on top of the six that I already had, that, for all intents and purposes, turned it into a nine-year suspended prison sentence. Because that's what the Department of Corrections will do. They'll say, oh, you got a six of the three. We'll just stack them together, make it a nine, give you one parole date, make it easier for everybody. Back in the old days, when I first caught my DOC number in Colorado back in the 90s, if you had a consecutive case, you had to get paroled and then start doing your next case. And that just created a whole bunch of paperwork and a lot of mistakes and stuff. So they finally changed that. Um <clears throat> But I mean, when I'm sitting there thinking about the deal, I'm like six years, nine years, what, the, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter. You know what I mean? At that point, it's not like I don't have, it's not like I have a family to come home to or loved ones who are going to miss me or, you know, wife, kids, anything. I didn't have anything. I didn't have my mom, my dad, I'm, you know, divorced at this point, or at least in the process. And my best friend lives far away and he's really the only friend that I have, you know, like I, I really felt like I had nobody. Um, and I get out and I went to, to a sober living house in Fort Collins. Um, and I met some really cool, uh, some really cool kids. They weren't kids. They were in their twenties, but they were super cool. Um, one of them, I'm not going to say his name. Um, We'll just call him Sean. Uh, that's close to his name. He'll know who I'm talking about when he hears it. Uh, he was in the sober living house. Um, he was struggling. He was a student. He was struggling with heroin addiction. Um, and then the other one, we'll call him Tom. Um, he lived a couple blocks away. And, uh, Sean and Tom were friends. And these were some of the most enlightened, spiritually wise people I had ever met in my life. Like, they were on point. They were philosophy majors and psychonauts and were really into pushing the bounds of self-awareness and God and Christ consciousness. And, like myself, were firm believers in the emotional and psychological healing powers of psychedelics. And so, um, you know, we're talking da, 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 and Sean's like, Hey man, um, have you ever smoked DMT or done ayahuasca? And I was like, no. And, uh, 
And I was like, no, I was like, I've kind of always been afraid of it. I was like, because people always told me like everything I've ever heard is like DMT is just like, you're like gone. You're like not here. You're like traveling to another wor world, another dimension. And like, <sighs> it's really life altering. Like it's revealing. Like people are like, oh yeah, like I, I smoked DMT and never wanted to drink again. And it's like, well, I don't know. Like <laughs> you weren't ready to roll those dice. <laughs> I never had been. And through talking with Tom and Sean, and then sitting with them while they got high. Um, Cause that was the invitation. They're like, well, they're like, we're gonna go back to Tom's house, chill in his garage, chill out, chill in his backyard, just be in nature. And we're just gonna, you know, two a couple hits each and then you can watch. And if you would like, you can participate. And if not, no pressure, man, just come hang out and listen to some good music. You know what I mean? So I was like, all right, cool. You know, I can, I can, I can jive with that. And, uh, yeah, basically they smoked a couple of hits, laid back, stared off into space for like 10, 15 minutes, came back and were so happy. Like they were just like, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Like they were giving me hugs. They were like, bro, bro, you'll love it, bro. It's so amazing. So like, yeah, you know, I, I'm susceptible to peer pressure just like everybody else. And, uh, but like at this point, it wasn't just peer pressure. It was like peer encouragement. They're like, bro, like, this will help you. Like, this will help heal you. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, low key, that's what I was afraid of. You know what I mean? Like, we will always choose the devil we know over the devil we don't know. You know what I mean? And like, at this point, my trauma was my closest friend. Heroin was my longest mistress. You know what I mean? Like, I, they, they were the only two things in my life that had any. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Value that were mine. You know what I'm saying? And 
but I guess I was ready because I did. I smoked, and <clears throat> the first time nothing happened. But I, I was kind of I was kind of a puss about it. I was afraid. I just took like one little hit and <sighs> waited, you know, like oh. And I was like, but like when I came down, I was like, oh, I was like, man, I feel really good. I was like, fuck it. How long do we gotta wait? They're like, yeah, you should probably wait about an hour. I said, all right, they're like, want to go for a walk? So we went down to City Park in Fort Collins, walked around by the lake and stuff, and we brought it with us, and then we found a secluded spot under, like, a low-hanging tree and, uh, evergreen, and, uh, they smoked. I didn't. I, they, they were like, we want to smoke in nature. And I was like, it's cool. I'll watch out for you, you know? Uh, so we went back to Tom's garage because it started raining, and, uh, he had, they, the way him and his roommates had it set up, uh, you know, they're all college kids, so they drink and smoke and trip and stuff. And uh, it was it was like a tripping room, and they had this one poster on the wall. They had a bunch of tapestries, but there was just one poster, and it was right across the seat that I was sitting in, and it was Abbey Road, like them walking across the street, Abbey Road, the Beatles, and uh, he passed me the pipe, and I, he was like, he put put some on, and he was like, okay, he was like, just you know, take as many hits as you can. He's like, and when you start to go, I'll, I'll take the pipe. I said, okay, so. I took like six hits. And they, like at four, they were like, okay. And I, and they were like, oh. And at six, they were like, oh. And then I started to go. And it's called blasting off. Um, so there's different levels. I didn't have an otherworldly experience where I saw the others. Like, I don't know what people call them, but the, I just call them the others. Um, but something happened. I was gone. Like everything, as soon as it started to kick in, I melted back into the chair. And that Abbey Road EP or cover just turned it like I was looking through a kaleidoscope and we were listening to uh Yassayer, Glass of the Microscope and I just remember I call it blasting off because that's what it felt like it felt like I was like sucked out of my body and then I just remember kind of coming to and just being really happy you know what I mean it was the only drug I'd ever done where when I came down I was like happy I was coming down I was like, oh my God, it feels so good to come down. I just want to go out and hug people. And, uh, but nothing life-changing, right? So fast forward a couple weeks, I ended up getting kicked out of the sober living house for smoking pot. Um, so all I needed, right? It's all I needed. And uh, I had a good job. I had been working at this four-star restaurant as a cook. I relapsed and... As soon as I relapsed, I knew something was different. Uh, nothing got quiet. The loathing self-talk, the voices of the past, the snapshots of the trauma, like none of that stuff was disappeared. All those things that had been dampered with yes. heroin use before yep. were not, they were just still as vivid as they always were. Yes. Um, but now I'm just high, feeling like shit. So I already feel like shit when I get high. That's why I get high. You know what I mean? And then I feel like more shit for getting high. So I keep getting high. And now I'm like, well, fuck. There's no relief. And I felt betrayed. Like way back in 1986, when I started doing heroin, her and I had this agreement. She said, I will shut the voices up, turn off the camera, and numb everything for everything in return. And I was like, okay. If you devote yourself yep, to Yep, and I did. I devoted my entire existence to heroin. And 
like all evil, it will eventually betray you. And I literally was left with nothing and nowhere to go. Mentally, there was no more escape. Like heroin was the escape. And now that was gone. Um, I don't have what it takes to be an everyday drunk. So that doesn't work. Like nothing, like I... I think at first I was scared. So I really started examining my options. And the more I started to look at where I was and the state of my life and the state of just me in general, the less hope I had. <laughs> and, uh... Because, I mean, you're looking at a pretty shitty picture at that point. Like, yeah. you've got a lot of shit hanging over your head. Yeah. 27 years of addiction off and on at least 22 for the most part active addiction has five years clean in there um childhood sexual trauma childhood physical trauma you know uh rape yeah rape as a teenager uh getting stabbed getting beat getting kicked out of my house at 12 years old having to grow up on the streets in New Jersey by myself all the abandonment all of the abandonment all the way back to birth yeah. I mean and if trauma begins in the womb I know Sharon was getting high and drinking when she was pregnant with me she told me she was and then the day I was born they take me away from my mom and take me to another state because my butthole was too small <laughs> I couldn't poop yeah, we're, we haven't investigated how that works, but apparently they can fix that, but they had to take him away from his mother to, for, a, for a month to do that. And I got to see my mom for a total of like 30 minutes in the whole first month of my life, which anybody who knows anything about childbearing and childbirth, like that's fucked up. Like the for most, both of them, for, actually. Yeah, for both. And, you know, this is things I had to look at when I got clean and did the work, you know, she had no bond with me. You know, and I had no bond with her. Um, but anyway, uh, so all this is so all just of this, yeah, right there, right there, and uh, I don't know where the thought came from, but I just remember it being there. That all of a sudden, on the options, the thing to do would be to just do a shot and end it all. And uh, I started thinking about the pros and the cons of that line, that line of thought. And one of my biggest fears was that uh, I was going to be alone because I was HIV positive. And I had always told myself way back since the 80s that if I ever got HIV, I would just kill myself because I didn't want to die a slow, miserable death. So this, on top of the fact that I didn't think that I was ever going to get clean, started becoming really good ideas, points of view, perspectives, um, definitely pros. And was making the loudest argument in my head. And uh, 
I didn't rush into it. It wasn't a rash decision. I thought about it for weeks. I remember climbing up the mountain in Boulder on Settlers Park and doing just enough dope to be well. Cause I, that's where I was at that point. I was like, well, I'm like, like now it's just maintenance. Like I was doing maybe a quarter gram every three or four days, which is not a lot. It's not a lot at all. Um, cause I was like, if I have to think and feel all this shit, then I, I want to be somewhat coherent and have some choice in what I think about and what I don't think about. And I prayed, I prayed and prayed and prayed. I prayed for something or some sign to show me that I was doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. And I prayed for discernment, for God to tell my heart what to do. And the reality was, is my heart was tired. My heart couldn't hear God. Um, I was tired in every imaginable sense of the word. <clears throat> I was uh, tired of being alone, tired of being strung out, tired of going to jail, tired of being homeless, tired of fucking life. And I started to look at it from the perspective of a poker player. Like, why am I holding on to this hand? This hand has no value. It's not a winning hand. I, I'm just bluffing and bluffing and bluffing. And eventually I'm going to have to show my cards anyway. So why, why not just fold? And, uh, I was kind of the deal sealer was when I decided that I was I realized that it was my ego that had always been telling me that I was meant to stick around for the credits like if there was something special about my life that there was anything important about me at all because um, I didn't feel important at all I felt like the world would be such a better place without me and I couldn't think of any argument to the contrary. Um, so I made the decision and I knew how I was gonna do it. Um, I made a playlist on my phone and uh, to listen to during the act. I decided I was gonna get a couple grams from, we'll call him Donnie, my dealer. And uh, I'd known Donnie since like 1994. And uh, he knew I was homeless, he knew the struggle. He, If it snowed or was raining, he would let me sleep at his house. And uh, he had an upstairs bathroom that had a tub that he would let me shower, or take baths in, whatever I wanted to do. Um, So I started praying for snow <laughs> and uh, it wasn't too long um, till it snowed. So on October 27th, 2013, I went to David's house and I got him to front me two grams and uh, had him convinced that I was gonna go sell them first thing in the morning or that, and uh, he trusted me, you know, I always paid him. And uh, 
We watched the movie. Man, I can't remember what fucking movie it was. But it was a part one, because I remember they were going to watch part two. And uh, I, I didn't watch the movie. That's why I don't remember what it was. Like, I was in my head the whole time. And uh, I was like, hey, man. Hey, Donnie, can I go upstairs and take a bath? And he was like, yeah, man, sure, no problem. I was like, there's candles up there. And uh, I had brought some candles, and I went upstairs. And it wasn't long. Maybe eight, ten minutes. Didn't take long. However long it takes for the tub to fill up. You know what I mean? Um, but by the time the tub filled up, I had everything ready. And uh, I got in the tub. I, I hollered downstairs. I was like, hey, anybody need the bathroom before I get in the tub? They were like, nah, it's cool. So uh, I got in the tub, put on velvet underground, heroin, and did both shots. It took two syringes to get it full to do both grams. And uh, did both shots. Remember doing the shots. Remember setting the needles down. I remember laying back and just being flooded with warmth and everything just going black. And apparently about 10 or 12 minutes after I had called down to see if anybody needed the bathroom, uh, we'll call her Tara, came upstairs to use the bathroom and the bathroom had one of those uh, locks that you lock from the inside. It's got the hole on, that, on the other side. And then you put like the little sardine key in it. So she, she unlocked the door and came in to use the bathroom. And I guess she was sitting there talking to me while she was trying to go to the bathroom. And she pulled the curtain back because she had asked me a question or something. And I guess I was blue. Like fucking, like she said that she immediately, instantly knew the second she saw me that I was dead. And she said she freaked out, ran downstairs, got, uh, we'll call him Thumper, and Donnie um, from downstairs. And I guess they came and pulled me out of the tub, started giving me CPR. I don't talk about this too much because it's not like I'm trying to promote it, but I'm going to tell the whole story. Uh, apparently while they were giving me mouth-to-mouth -mouth and uh, CPR or whatever, Chest compressions. Chest compressions. Uh, the whole thing is CPR. Um, she went downstairs and fixed up a shot of meth. And uh, came upstairs and shot me up. And they kept giving me CPR. And I guess after about 30 to 45 seconds, uh, my eyes opened up. And I gasped for air and started breathing. And that's kind of where I remember things picking up <laughs> and I at first you know like what the fuck where am I who am I what's going on you know what year is it and then it's like fuck within seconds I like realize from looking at them they're all wet you know what I mean I can tell I'm like in water on the floor I can tell I'm naked and like I, I just started crying <laughs> god I was crying and they started crying they're like hugging me thumpers punching me Tara's punching me Donnie's freaking the fuck out. Like, why would you do this in my house? Like, I tried to play it off like it was an accident. But then they were like, Where, where's all the dope? Where's the dope? Where's the dope? So, there, you know, it wasn't hard to figure out that it wasn't an accident. Um, man, I just sat there. 
I just sat there fucking hating my life, hating myself. And I was so high and I just didn't want to be high anymore. I was like, I do not want to fucking ever do this fucking drug again. And I made a decision right there that if I was ever thinking about doing heroin again, that I would get a gun and fucking shoot myself in the face. If it ever got to the point where I was like, yep, I'm going to get high again. I'm just going to put a bullet in my head because I don't think that I have another trip back. And I don't think that I would survive it. I barely fucking survived the last relapse. Um, you know, I've talked a lot in podcasts that I've been guest on and on this show about all of the work that I did in the first year, but I never really talked about how fucking miserable it was. Like, I remember there was a two-week period where I didn't get out of my fucking bunk. Like, I had to go to groups to stay in the program in jail. And uh, I had to go to the yard once a day because rec was mandatory. But, um... <laughs> I'd go to group and I'd sit there and sob. I'd go to the yard and I'd sit there and sob. And if I wasn't in either of them places, then I was in my bunk crying. I cried for two fucking weeks. This is what I was afraid of. I told myself for 27 years, you can't cry. You ever cry, you'll never stop. So I was like, man, I'm never going to stop fucking crying. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I prayed that God would send somebody into the fucking unit with dope. I was like, I just don't want to feel. But the reality is I knew I didn't. That wasn't a thing. Nobody who was in that program would have ever brought dope in there. It was for people who were really trying to change their lives. So it was fruitless. But it was like, I kind of liken it to the fucking alcoholics with DTs begging for a drink. You know what I mean? I wasn't withdrawing physically. I was withdrawing emotionally. Like, I was detoxing emotionally. And I couldn't handle it. I just wanted to get well. Like, I equated heroin with making me feel okay. So that's what I wanted. Like, I didn't really want it. But I did. You know what I'm saying? Um. But, uh. Well, you wanted the same thing you'd always wanted. You just wanted the pain to stop. Yep. Um. But I'm so grateful for it. Like. You know, like. <laughs> they say, ten men enter, one man leaves. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's how it was. Like, when I finally sat with my trauma, it was like a battle royal. Like, we all got in the fucking ring. And like, last man standing, let's go. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Rex walked out, you know. Uh, but it, it, it took a while. It took years, you know. I mean, it, it took... I mean, I... I, I went from county jail to the halfway house and then from the halfway house to prison because I got a jaywalking ticket when I was at the halfway house and they violated me and sent me to prison. And uh, between county and prison and the halfway house, I was locked up for four and a half years. The first four and a half years of my sobriety was in prison. 
Um, and I don't know how what it's like where you're at, listener, uh, whoever's listening. But here in Colorado, there is plenty of dope on the fucking prison yard. Uh, and it's good quality. It's high quality. Because if you sell shit dope in prison, you'll get killed. <laughs> and uh, I got really depressed uh, when I went back to prison. And they basically fucking... If you have any kind of diagnosis in Colorado Department of Corrections, you have to take medications. They force you to take medications. If they don't, if you don't take those medications, then they will fuck with your security level. Like make you go to higher security prisons or they'll put you in segregation. They'll put you in the hole for non-compliance. So... I went from the halfway house when I went to prison, they immediately put me into, it's called a TC program, a therapeutic community. It's like rehab in prison, but it's bullshit. It's nothing like fucking rehab whatsoever. It's, it's all about division. Like you write each other tickets. So like if you're, if you and I are in TC together and you drop an F-bomb, then I write you a ticket for foul language. So I'm basically snitching you out and then you, I hand it to you and then you got to go snitch on yourself and then you get extra duty and extra work detail and basically all it is is fucking the entire dinner fucking, so like breakfast and lunch shift goes from like 5 a.m. to like 1 p.m. in the kitchen, 1.30 and then from 1.30, 1 to 1.30 till it's done is dinner shift. There's so many people fucking up in TC for stupid, simple shit that every single kitchen worker except for the police is from TC for the dinner at this prison. It's the largest, second largest prison in Colorado. Houses about 1,700 inmates. And you're constantly, they call them pull-ups. Oh, here, and, you, and, you, and like the way, like, hey, Marcy, can I pull you up? And you have to say yes, thank you. If you say anything other than yes, thank you, then I write you another fucking ticket for not responding correct. I mean, it's it's such bullshit. So I got kicked out of that program um, <laughs> on purpose. Uh, I told one of the lieutenants who was in charge of the fucking unit that the only reason she got to go home at night was because us inmates allowed it for her to never forget that, never get it twisted. So they threw me in the hole for threats on staff. Uh, I beat the right up, but... um. I went to another prison and uh, I ran into a friend of mine, at least who I thought was a friend. Uh, it's not his real name, so I'm just going to say it. This dude, KB, and we were kicking it. And things were going good and like everything was good. And like all I literally did was go to work, work out, and play Dungeons and Dragons with all the other fucking nerds in my unit. Like that's all I did. And. Some dude who was trying to get stripes with some fucking prison gang sucker punches me in front of the guard and I end up getting kicked out of the prison. They sent me to another prison. But this was actually cool because the captain who was the one who was in charge of the move, I knew him and he let me pick which prison I went to. (laughs) So I went to the cushy prison and I had a cushy job and everything was going good. And I was actually, no, that's that's a lie. This is going to be a two-parter, obviously. Uh, I'll break it into two parts and I'll edit some of this out. 
<clears throat> but um, I've told you about this. So this is going to be the last story that I tell. But <clears throat> in prison, there's a lot of inmates who have disabilities, who are in wheelchairs, who are quadriplegic, paraplegic, and they need a level of care that DOC does not afford them. DOC can't hire as many nurses and CNAs as it would take to care for all these people because then you would have a bunch of civilians running around the prison yard and it just creates too much opportunity for something to go awry, right? Hostage situation, rape, something, you know, because there's dudes there that don't give a fuck. You know, like when, when you're never getting out, at least in the prison yard, we call it from now on. So there's dudes that got from now on that don't give a fuck. If they see an opportunity to fucking rape somebody, man or woman, usually, they're going to take it. And so what they have done to counterbalance this lack of staff is they train inmates how to take care of other offenders. You're called an offender care aide, OCA. There's OCA 1, which basically you're just a pusher. You just push people in wheelchairs either to meals, to medline, or to their appointments, or to the yard and back. Um, usually someone in your cell house. Um, then there's OCA 2, who OCA 2 uh, will help offenders get dressed, like ones who are wheelchair bound to help them put their pants on, help them put their socks and shoes on, um, sometimes uh, help them eat. You know, it depends upon the level of their infirm. And then there's OCA 3. OCA 3 is basically a fucking a nurse. You distribute med, you, they, the, the nurse gives you the meds, you give the person the medication, you shave them, wipe their ass, shower them. Um, I had one client who had rheumatoid arthritis so bad he was permanently frozen in the fetal position. Um, I had to Trim pick, nails, yes, shaving, yep. all, the, all uh -huh. the care. Yep. All of it, all of it. Mm -hmm. um, feeding, feeding, spoon feeding, you know. Um. So then there's this one guy, this one inmate. I can't remember his name. If I could, I would say it because he's a piece of shit. He's, he's done some piece of shit things. He's still a child of God. And this man taught me humility. He taught me what it means to be humble and to swallow my pride to be of service to another human being. One, because it's what I should do. And two, because it's my job. It's my responsibility. It's responsibility that I took upon myself. This man was a morbidly obese. He's probably about 500 pounds wheelchair bound. We had to use a cherry picker to get him out of bed to put him in his wheelchair, strap him up and crank it up and move him over and set him down. And fucking, he had fans who would send him money. Um, he was a child rapist, a child murderer, um, and a child torturer. And he only raped and murdered and tortured boys. And when he was caught, he had the penis, which he had cut off of his last victim, in his wallet when they caught him. Okay, I'm an old school convict. So the old school convict rules are you don't touch women, you don't touch kids, you don't victimize women, children, or elderly. Anything other than that, because there's plenty of other crime to commit. You don't have to fuck with the weak. You do not victimize those who cannot defend or stand up for themselves. It's just not what you do because most convicts, most criminals are alpha males. They're either alpha males with big dick energy 
or they're fucking beta males with little dick energy and they want to be alpha males so they act like they think alpha males want to act. And then there's sex offenders. Like, I would rather hang out with a snitch and kick it with someone who fucking told on me than someone who victimized a child or a woman or an elderly. Um, mostly because it's just fucked up, but secondly, because I have been the victim. Um, so, they come to me. They're like, hey man, we need you to be this guy's OCA. And I'm like, have you read my file? Like, I literally beat an attempted murder charge for stabbing a child molester in the neck seven times. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, not the guy. And they're like, well, you can be the guy or we'll pull your OCA and then you're going to get shipped out. So I'm like, fuck, man. I got a cush here. I don't want to get shipped out. I'm in the incentive unit. I got an Xbox in my room. I got a DVD player. And working with that guy over the next five months was probably the most humiliating, not humiliating, but the most humbling experience because regardless of whether you want to or not, you get to know the person. And he, at least outwardly, had remorse in his heart. He knew that God was punishing him. He was so diabetic and so fat and overweight that they were cutting him off at like six inches at a time. First his toes, then his foot, then his shin. You know what I mean? And then they took his other foot. And I'm there this whole time. This was in like a five-month period. He lost toes, foot, shin, toes, foot. And uh, you, it, I learned how to look past the worldly and see the inner, see the child of God, see the soul inside who was struggling and had no one and nothing except for me. I was the only person, because that's how it was with this dude. Only the people who were assigned to him were his only friends. And he did so much to try to make me forgive him. And I finally told him the day I was leaving because I finally was like, hey, I don't want to be an OCA anymore. I want to go work in the license plate shop. And as soon as they took me off OCA, OCA they shipped me out. <laughs> but when I was leaving the yard, he was like, where are you going? I was like, hey, man, I was like, I just want you to know that I forgive you and God forgives you. I was like, you have to forgive yourself to find whatever it is that you're looking for. And uh, and I kind of carried that with me. I don't even really know where I'm going with this. I just... <clears throat> Every life is precious. Well, it, it makes me sad because I... <clears throat> Until you came along, I didn't have anybody to share my life with. <laughs> um, you know, I had a couple friends, and, but <clears throat> I never had anybody who wanted to hear about this stuff. You know, um, there's healing power in talking about things, and I've never really had anybody to listen. <laughs> you know, like I mean, I guess that's why I'm doing the podcast, because <clears throat> at least now it's out there. You know, it's not just mine anymore. Um, I don't know. I'm going to wrap up. I just want to say that I'm so blessed 
and so grateful for the life that I've had. And it's been hard. It's been really hard. Um, but I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad I didn't succeed. I love life today. I love the bullshit. I love the drama. I love the chaos. Because I'm alive today. I'm not just existing. I live today. I love today. I have love. Thanks to you. I got some pretty cool kiddos in my life. Thanks to you. I just, uh... Yeah. So, if anybody's made it this far and you're listening, um... Your story has value. You have value. Um, please don't think that you don't. Please don't think that you're alone because you're not truly alone. You just think you're alone. Um, there's a whole community of people out there who want to know you, who care about you. You just got to find them. You know, in recovery, we stay. We say, stick around until the miracle happens. Well, that's my advice to you too, whether you're in the program or not, is stick around until the miracle happens. Because it will. And someday you'll realize. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Because I can't tell you what it is. I know what it is for me. Um, looking right at her. But. Uh, and it's also the fact that I can look at every fucked up single thing. That's happened in my life. And look at it as a blessing. Because they say that God will never give you more. Than you can handle in a day. But he often won't give you less. Yeah. And. Looking back on my life, I realize now that God has had a lot more faith in me than I ever had in him. And uh, so now I just try to return that faith and I try to just be a good guy. <laughs> That's all I want to be. It's a good guy who helps other people instead of being selfish and worrying about himself all the time. Some days I nail it. <laughs> but it's definitely a work in progress. Uh, well, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. I hope somebody listened. Uh, I think this one was probably more for me than anybody else. Uh, nine years is a pretty big deal. Um, it's a really big deal. It's... Uh, very humbling because I know where I was nine years ago um, and now you do too <laughs> so thank you thank God you bless. so much you guys um, for going down this rabbit hole with us yeah and uh, you know if anything I said triggered anybody please follow any of the links in the show notes or just know that you're not alone uh, you can always reach out to us uh, we just ask if you're a guy, reach out to me. If you're a girl, reach out to her. Which, every way you identify, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, you can hit us up on our website, nolovepodcast.com or nolovefoundation.org. Um, it's not hard to find us. It's not hard to find us. I mean, if you look, if you spend about five minutes looking, you can probably find my cell phone number. Um, all I ask is text, don't call. Just because my ringer's off. You'll get a response if you text. <laughs> God bless if you're listening. We love you. Um, you're not alone. You're never alone. 
we're here with you. Until next time, I'm Rex. I'm Raina. God bless. Namaste. Hey, everybody. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Um, we know that today's show is a really heavy show, and we understand that that could be kind of triggering for some people. Please, if you or anyone you know are thinking about harming yourself or just need someone to talk to, life's getting too rough, just dial 988 or text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741. Please reach out to us. Reach out to any of the links in the show notes. Just know that you're not alone. We love you and we care. Namaste. God bless. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.